Trauma is a fact of life. It does not, however, have to be a life sentence. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Howdy ho, my shit shows. Today, we are diving deep with Katie Mather. She is a novelist, she is a podcaster, and she is a former teacher of my friend Taylor. So, a few months ago, Uh, My friend Taylor reached out to me and said that a friend of his was in the process of writing a new book and that she had reached out to him with some alcoholism AA-related questions, which turned out to be more adult child-related, which he then referred her to the pod. Um, And so he said that she was really digging the pod uh, and wanted to know if he could connect the two of us. So her and I get on the phone. Not only was she digging the pod, but she also realized oh, I might be one of these two. I might be an adult child, which seems to be a common response when people listen to this shit. Um, But her and I had a great chat. And part of that was she shared with me that she was currently doing psychedelic assisted therapy. Research is showing that uh, using psychedelics to treat trauma is one of the most effective ways to treat trauma. So I've been wanting to dive into this. So I was like, let's get you on the damn pod. So her and I chatted last week. And it wasn't until like an hour into our conversation where we finally started talking about psychedelics. So this is a first for the podcast. You're getting a two-parter. So today I'm talking to Katie about her childhood, about her own struggles with alcohol, which is a different perspective than what we've discussed on the podcast thus far. So I think that this is going to be really beneficial to hear her experience we're talking about a, a physical assault that she endured 20 years ago, so trigger warning there. And we're talking about how she used EMDR to treat that event. Uh, and then next week, we're diving into all the psychedelic shit. So that is what we have going on for the next two weeks. I'm kind of digging this format. As you know, I like to ask a lot of questions. I like to get in there. So having a two-parter, longer-form combo was was enjoyable for me. So um, please give me y'all's feedback on what you think about this. So before we get to Katie, I do want to talk a little bit more about EMDR. We have discussed this several times uh, throughout the podcast, but I want to provide a little bit more detail. I want to talk about how the hell it came about, uh, a little bit about the process and specifically some comments related to EMDR and complex PTSD. So just a reminder, I am not a neuroscientist, I am not a doctor, and I am not a therapist. So I'm going to do my best to explain all this shit to you in layman's terms. So EMDR, what does that stand for? Eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. Sometimes that, that D word is hard for me desensitization. So this is a uh, a therapeutic approach that processes unprocessed trauma. So when we are talking about PTSD, when we are talking about complex PTSD, 
when we are talking about the adult child trauma syndrome, we are talking about unprocessed trauma. What the fuck is unprocessed trauma? I'm going to explain what's going on in the brain as best as I can. So we have our emotional part of the brain, which is our limbic system, and then we have our rational part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex. So the limbic system, that is where we process our emotions. That is where we collect information gathered by our five senses. And so then all of that information is sent to the thinking part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, which elevates that data to a conscious level and converts it into language or pictures, you know, that have meaning attached to them. So it's the limbic system that provides the content through our five senses. And then it is the prefrontal cortex that categorizes that content, that integrates all of the fragments of the experience into a coherent whole picture or story. So what happens during trauma is that the prefrontal cortex temporarily shuts down while the limbic system, the emotional part of the brain, revs up. So that means that we continue to record the content, but that we are not making any sense of that content. And so this is from uh, Tian's book, The ACOA Trauma Syndrome. Because the prefrontal cortex was not doing its job of elevating the information to a conscious level and making sense of it, those emotions and sense impressions were stored within us but remain unconscious. The feelings and fragments of sensory experience and emotion are in us, but we don't know just where and how they fit into the total picture. And so this is why each new relationship well, was worse than the last, because all of these relationships just deepened its imprint within me. So in order to heal from trauma, we have to dig up these unprocessed memories that lie within our limbic system and bring it to the surface and reprocess it. So what's the backstory on EMDR? So in 1987, uh, Francine Shapiro, she was a, a graduate student in psychology. She's walking in the park when she realized that eye movements uh, appeared to decrease the negative emotion that she was feeling at that time. Uh, somehow she realized that I don't, looking back and forth, I don't know if it's at the trees or whatever, that that somehow uh, calmed her. It, it got rid of the negative emotions that she was feeling at that time. How the fuck did she realize that? That when she was moving her eyes back and forth, left to right, left to right while walking in the park, that that somehow made her uh, feel better. So she starts researching it and she did realize, though, that eye movement on its own would not create a comprehensive therapeutic effect. So then she added other treatment elements to this. And so when she finally officially established EMDR, it was uh, comprised of eight different phases. Now, I was going to go through each of the eight phases, but we're going to be here all night if I do that. So I'm just going to generally explain what the fuck is going on. So the first two phases of EMDR are the preparation phases. So phase one, this is the history and evidence gathering stage. So this is when the therapist figures out you know, what brought this person uh, to them? What is the traumatic event or the limiting belief 
that brought them in there. So it doesn't have to be one single catastrophic event. It could be a limiting belief. And as we know, as adult children, these limiting beliefs have a ton of, you know, scenes and experiences associated with them. This is also when the therapist inquires on how this traumatic event or how this limiting belief is impacting their lives in the present. The second phase is the treatment planning phase. This is when the therapist will let the client know what they can expect and also ensure that the client has healthy coping mechanisms in place because as to be expected, this is going to bring up some shit. So making sure that the client has tools in place if things get a little dicey. So then the subsequent phases are the meat and potatoes of EMDR. This is when the desensitization and reprocessing occurs. And this is done through bilateral stimulation. And there's no easy way for me to explain this to you. Uh, So in the show notes, I'm including a link to a a YouTube video where it's an actual EMDR session where you're going to see what this bilateral stimulation looks like. There's many different ways that you can do it. But this bilateral stimulation mimics REM sleep. So REM sleep is when we take all that sensory information and data from the day and our prefrontal cortex, you know, organizes it, makes sense of it and files it in the appropriate places in our brain. And so this bilateral stimulation mimics REM sleep and allows someone to take those unprocessed trauma that never went through the prefrontal cortex and to file it correctly, to see it for what it truly is, and to squash the negative beliefs that were the result of it and replace them with healthy, positive beliefs. And so this is typically accomplished over several sessions, anywhere from like six to 12. So now let's talk about complex trauma. So in my episode with the crappy childhood fairy, she made a comment about how research has shown that EMDR is not as effective at treating childhood trauma or complex trauma as it is to treating, you know, big T trauma, like one big catastrophic event. And I had not heard that before, so I did a little digging for us all. So can EMDR be effective in treating complex trauma? The answer is yes, but it's not a cure-all and it's not a quick fix. And one must proceed with caution. In particular, the preparation phases, the history and evidence gathering and the treatment planning. In order for EMDR to be effective, there has to be a certain level of safety and stability within the individual because they must be able to view the event or the limiting belief, you know, from a place of safety and stability. And they have to be able to stay in the present moment and not dissociate. And without the ability to stay grounded and present, EMDR can actually backfire and it could be traumatic in itself and cause the person to re-experience the trauma in a harmful way. So let's take somebody who experiences a big T trauma, but let's say that they have a secure attachment style or they have no prior trauma history EMDR can help them resolve their issues rather quickly, and that is because phases one and two go a little bit faster. There's not as much evidence and history to gather, and somebody without the history of complex trauma, this person is more likely to already have been in a stabilized place 
you know, prior to that traumatic experience. Also, somebody who has survived a, a single incident trauma, they may already have a solid emotional foundation where they feel safe and grounded. However, with us, adult children, those of us with a history of complex trauma, we may have to build this emotional foundation from scratch. So yes, EMDR can work for treating complex trauma, but one must proceed with caution. And, you know, from everything that I read, they said, do it with somebody who's very, very experienced and has a lot of experience treating people specifically with complex trauma. So I think I had shared that I did EMDR, um, I guess it was maybe 2017. So it was in between Brian number one and Brian number two. And I can't really tell you if it was effective or not. I mean, I would say that uh, that stability wasn't really there for me. Um, I mean, I, I was fine, but I still was kind of oblivious as to what was actually going on with me. Like, I don't think I realized that that I was suffering from, you know, complex PTSD or how severe my actual issues were. So I'm not sure how effective it, it really was, but I'd love to do some more of it. Well, I'm going to shut up now, uh, but I do just want to give a quick shout out to all my new Patreon members. So again, Patreon is where I host virtual support groups. It's how you show appreciation for me and you get to hang out with a lot of cool people. So thank you, thank you, thank you to Jessica, Joey, Jen, Tony, Alex, Chicken Betty. Oh, I like that. Jasmine, Sarah, Shayna, Dell, Julie, Christine, Shelly, Lisa, Mare, Rich, Jennifer, another Jennifer, Becky, Mike, Susanna, and Jenny. You guys are so cool. Did you know that? <laughs> Uh, head on over to patreon.com slash adult child if you have any interest and give me a damn five star rating on Apple and Spotify. Do it now. Thank you. How lucky can one guy be? I kissed her and she kissed me. Like the fella once said, ain't that a kick in the head? The room was completely black. I hugged her and she hugged back. The truth of the matter, my dear shit shows, is that there is a huge overlap in those of us who grew up in a dysfunctional family and those of us who are suffering from ADHD. I myself got diagnosed with ADHD about a year ago, and getting this diagnosis and treating this diagnosis has made such a difference in my productivity and getting shit done. Now let me tell you about Done. Done is an online ADHD care platform where you can get all the resources you need to help manage your ADHD. Take a free one-minute assessment and book an appointment with a licensed ADHD clinician as soon as the next day. Get continuous care, one-click refills, insurance coverage, and 24-7 care team support with Done for just $79 a month and pharmacy copays as low as $0. Visit get.donefirst.com slash podcast to learn more. Again, that is get.donefirst.com slash podcast. Done. Turn ADHD into your strength. All right. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce Katie Mather. She is a an author, a podcast host. Your podcast is called 
out of curiosity and we got connected uh, through a mutual friend, Taylor. Katie was his uh, teacher when he was at boarding school in high school. And then it turns out we have a bunch of mutual connections. So I'm so excited to have you here. Welcome, Katie. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. And I have been loving your podcast and recommending it all over the place. So thank you very much for all of the work you've been doing and all of the people you've been introducing me to. I really appreciate it. Um, so we initially connected because you're working on a novel Yes. where the, the uh, what do you call it? The protagonist? Is that, is that yeah. what you call it in the literary world? Sure. Main character, protagonist. <laughs> the main character is an adult child. Yes. I am. She is not diagnosed or she, and she does not know of herself to be that. And the discovery of that is not part of her journey, but it was hugely informative to me um, to have that vocabulary uh, introduced to me when I was thinking about her as a character and then thinking about, you know, oh, okay, well then what are her traits and mm. what is her shift going to be and how might it, ha- you know, how might that shift happen? So that was hugely helpful when thinking about my book. But then as I started listening to your podcast more and more, and as I started listening to all of your guests, I was like, oh, I sort of qualify as that. Like that resonates. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, it's been helpful in both of those ways. So I was just listening. You were just on um, the Naked Mind podcast. Yeah. and you were talking about your upbringing and I thought it was so um, interesting the way that you described it, having it, you know, be very picturesque and loving and warm in some respects, but then at the others, on the other end of it, having to be very dysfunctional. And I think that your experience is probably the experience of many of my listeners. So I was hoping that you could share a little bit about your dysfunctional slash not dysfunctional family. <laughs> my normal dysfunctional family? Yes. Yeah. Well, I think it goes to say what I what I said in one of my episodes that a loving family and a dysfunctional family are not mutually exclusive. Right. Well, and I think I can't remember which of your guests was talking about this, but was talking about it's not the dysfunction that ends up causing you lasting pain. It was me. (laughs) (laughs) But how the dysfunction is handled. Yes, exactly. And that if you don't talk about it, Mm-hmm. And that if you don't um, actively learn how to process it, mm-hmm. that that's the part where it gets clogged up and that's the part where it causes you lasting pain. And that was what I think was happening. You know, I'm, I grew up in a, your typical like wasp family. In Alaska, right? In Alaska. Yes. I didn't know there was wasps up there. Oh, I mean, in the sense of, yeah, you know, we are not <laughs> wasps in the sense of, yes, like houses in Nantucket but of just being like white Anglo-Saxon Protestants Uh who would much rather stuff our feelings down into our guts and turn them into cancer and irritable bowel syndrome than (laughs) actually talk about them. Um, So yeah, materially, I was incredibly well cared for. Like, you know, we always had good food to eat. You know, I was put, I played competitive soccer all, and that was very supported by my family. You know, both my parents are very smart and had good jobs. And, you know, that was modeled for me. Um, I was taken very seriously academically and intellectually. So there was there were all of these things in place that made for a very healthy environment. Unfortunately, my family tree is riddled with alcoholics and with people who over depend on alcohol. 
Um, and so that was part of the picture as well. And then add to that, um, there was a lot of fighting mm. that went inside, what, that went on in the house. But then I think it was the never acknowledging it that was mm. sort of the lasting painful part that is what I am sort of working on Feeling unpacking with? now. Yes. How long has your, how long had your family been in Alaska? They moved up there in 1975, which was okay. the year that I was born. So they moved up there. They were, my folks are from Oregon. Um, and they moved up there because my dad got a job. Cause I mean, I don't know if it's mostly with the natives up there, but I mean, isn't alcoholism is, is rampant up there. Don't they have some, I feel like they have some like DUI thing. That's like, are, are, I feel like things are more strict up there as far as DUIs. Am I just making that up? I don't know if DUIs are more strict, but yes. I mean, I think it's, I think there are many things going on in Alaska um, that cause it to be a like high alcohol use state. The I darkness. mean, it doesn't, the <laughs> darkness, it does not help that it in the winter. Yes. It literally, when I would go to school, uh, it would start in high school, it would start getting light around second period. So like nine, nine thirty, and it would be getting dark again by the time I left school at wow. like three. That's such so, a, yeah. what is that like? I mean, you don't, I mean, I guess I can't even ask you what it's like. Cause that's all you knew. I didn't know any better. Yes. But for people who did not grow up there, it fucks them up. Like yeah. they get some serious seasonal affective disorder. Uh-huh. Like you people need light. Uh-huh. Um, and <laughs> especially if it's people who aren't from that region, you know, like I feel like Scandinavians have developed all kinds of cultural workarounds, uh-huh. including alcohol use, but lots of different cultural workarounds to deal with the fact that that is a group of people who evolved in the North. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, you just move a bunch of people to Alaska and then what the hell they're doing. Um, and so, yeah, they end up with like alcoholism, seasonal affective mm-hmm. disorder, like all kinds of other stuff. So yeah, that is difficult. Um, and then I think a lot of people who move to Alaska move. I, I used to like to say that people and that Alaska was full of fugitives mm-hmm. who are either on the run from justice or their family. <sighs> so, yeah, which, you know, is only partially true, but it's still a good joke. So was alcoholism, uh, you say it's, you know, runs rampant in your family, but was it, was active alcoholism present during your childhood? Um, there was definitely an overuse. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I don't know yet what we would call it. And And then, then how were you aware was, how were you aware that it was, it runs rampant in your family, just pieces that you've been able to put together or did your parents speak with you about it at any point or? Yes. I, you know, I, it was somewhat common knowledge that my dad's dad was, you know, had been an alcoholic, was in AA, had been in an AAA for quite a while. Um, but that, that was a fact that that played a role in my dad's childhood. So that was, yes, that that was a known thing. And now that I've gone back and I've talked more with my dad and I've talked some more with my uncle, like, it seems like that was a pretty big deal and had a pretty major impact on their childhood. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Yeah. So then your dad was an adult, an adult child. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Um, and then what about the fighting? What were they fighting about? Dumb stuff. Yeah. You know, just dumb. You you know, it's the dumb stuff that you fight about on the surface when what's really going on underneath is just like, yeah, dysregulated nervous systems clashing with each other because 
um, you ha- are adult children. Mm-hmm. And were you the hero child? I think, I don't know exactly what I was. Okay. So yeah. So both my parents were oldest siblings and I am the youngest in a two kid family. So I am the, I was the only younger child in a family with three older children. Um, and it was the three of them, you know, it was my parents, but also my brother got in the mix there. Um, and I just, I, uh, good at telling jokes. Okay. Mascot. Good at being a moderator. Mm-hmm. Good at engaging uh, people in the family in conversation about what had happened Mm. to try to help people process it so that maybe we could, you know, whatever. Um, But then also just did tons of dissociating, lying, and taking myself out of the house. So I think sounds like a mix of hero, lost child, and the mascot. Just doesn't sound like just not the scapegoat. No scapegoat. It doesn't sound like. Yeah, not now that came later. Uh, No, I yeah, I mean, and I've joked with my parents about this, but like starting in junior high, I basically found a way to not be home on the weekends Mm. because that was typically when the you know the shit hit the fan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So and then when did your relationship with alcohol begin? Um, not until like actually after college, really, um, you know, I did what I would consider normal teenage drinking when I was in high school, which was, you know, I would go to parties and whatever, but I actually didn't love it. Um, and then in college, the college, like the heterosexual party scene that was like the let's get shit faced and decide whether or not we're going to hook up with each other. That was not for me. (laughs) Where'd you go to school? At a undergrad I went to a place called Western Washington University which is in Bellingham Washington it's got about 10,000 kids it doesn't have any Greek system Mm -hmm. but you know it had its fair amount of partying and its fair amount of like hookup culture and I was just like the first party that I went to my freshman year where I vibed the like will we or won't we Mm -hmm. I was just like and I'm never coming back to this um (laughs) so then I ended up uh playing rugby And that was actually much better for me. And so I did a fair, you know, I did a standard, again, a standard amount of partying with the rugby team, but it, I don't feel like it was anything that was unusual, an unusual dependence Mm -hmm. um, or like a crutch like dependence. I think teams were a crutch like dependence. Like I think when I was playing Mm -hmm. soccer in high school and then playing rugby in college, that those were the things that that was a way that I could feel safe. Yeah. Um, was by having a team. Um, and then, so it wasn't until after I finished college when I started trying to have new friend groups Mm. and like figure out how to be social with people who I had not known my entire life, um, that I started to rely on alcohol much more. Is there a particular incident that is memorable to you? Uh, not really. There is a particular job that is memorable to me, which is that I started working at a restaurant in Seattle. Um, and it was, yeah, the alcohol use. I mean, it was a drug and alcohol use culture at that restaurant. And it was bananas. Um, and yeah, I basically went all in with the alcohol 
amazingly, I always had the self-preservation to avoid the cocaine and the meth, um, which were on offer. I was like, no, that is not, not you know, not, not, mm -mm. <laughs> did you listen to my episode this week mary methmas <laughs> no oh god what happened no no just just one of like, oh. my my guest she she was dating a guy and then after a few months they're just in a hotel room and he just decided to tell her that he smokes meth and but he had just texted her on christmas this was he she had dated him several years ago but yeah. he had just recently texted her on on christmas mm -hmm. and i said mary mary methmas yeah. I was working at a bar in restaurant in Chicago after grad school where, and, but, you know, and by then I, I mean, I had, I think, yeah, starting in my twenties, I started using alcohol on a daily basis, basically just for social reasons. Um, and yeah, when I worked at this restaurant in Chicago, again, yes, I was happy to participate in the drinking culture, but I was dating a guy at the time who went out with a group of the people from that restaurant. And I did not go out because I had to open brunch the next morning at 5 a.m. Mm -hmm. And so then a guy who my boyfriend had gone out with came in that morning and was just like, oh, my God, your boyfriend did so much coke last night. And I was like, fuck. And so when I got home that day, I was just like, listen, dude, I cannot handle a cocaine phase. Like, if you need to have a cocaine phase, <laughs> go. But I'm like, but I can't be part of it. Like, no. So was so. that the end? No, he decided not to have a cocaine oh, phase. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. That's no, that relationship, we were so fucked up in so many other ways that a cocaine <laughs> phase probably would have put us out of our misery uh, mm -hmm. uh, long before we uh, managed to implode. But yeah. <laughs> So yeah. do you have a particular moment where you remember thinking maybe my relationship with alcohol is not healthy? I think I had a lot of little lead up moments, you know, because, well, I guess, I guess I can say a couple of things. Um, I knew that I was one of those people who, if I was having a good time, could not put the brakes on. Mm -hmm. But I also didn't need to have that kind, quote, that kind of good time every mm -hmm. day. So I was just like, you know, it's fine if I let myself go big every now and again. Um, and it was completely easy for me to stop when I got pregnant. And so I was just like, you know, if I can quit that easily, then that's not a problem. But then in the years after my second kiddo came, I just you know, it's just like you start to feel like there's something over here that wants mm -hmm. you to look at it. That's like kind of off to the side. And it's just like, you should look over here and be like, I'm not going to look over there. It's like, you should just, just look over here, just look over here. And I'm like, I'm not going to look over there. Um, and so, and so then I tried to do all of the tricks for moderation of being like, oh, I'll just only ever have two beers mm -hmm. and oh, I'll only ever drink like Thursday through Sunday. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I'll try a sober October and a sober January. And so just, yeah, trying to do Jack moves. And then I did have do a podcast call with Taylor where he talked about his recovery. And I remember during that conversation, he said, people who don't have a problem with alcohol, don't wonder if they have a problem with alcohol. And I was like, you shut your mouth. Yeah. I would like to say that again, for everyone listening, people who don't have a problem with alcohol don't wonder if they have a problem with alcohol. Continue. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so he said that, and it's like, you know, once you hear something, you can't unhear it. Mm -hmm. 
even if you want to. And when he said that, I was like, motherfucker. Um, because I did wonder all the time. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't though, it wasn't until like quite a bit later, I think, like maybe a full year later, because I think maybe I tried a bunch of moderation stuff in between to see if I could win. And then it was like, I think a year later ish where my husband was out of town. I'm hanging out with my kids. I'd had a couple all day IPAs and, you know, (laughs) things seemed normal. And then like, you know, we weren't, the kids and I weren't arguing. The kids weren't punching each other. Nobody was having a freak out. And I just went into the laundry room Mm. and like, so stereotypical, like after school special, just like broke (laughs) down in tears and I'm not a crier Mm -hmm. and just broke down in tears and started sobbing. And, you know, I had just, my book, my first book is about to come out. Like I have fulfilled this lifelong dream because it was February of 2019. I have fulfilled a lifelong dream. My debut novel is about to come out. I have all of these readings across the country booked and I go into the laundry room and I break down in tears and I'm like, why am I so fucking sad? Mm-hmm. And then this little Oh, and then I was like, am I going to have to go out on Prozac? Like, what the fuck am I going to do? Oh, and heaven this, forbid. <laughs> yeah, which I did it. I went on Prozac for a year and it, quote, helped me. But basically what it did was it pulled me back together enough yeah. that I could continue operating where I was. But I was just like, do I need to go on, back on antidepressants? Like, what do I need to do? And this little voice in my ear was like, do you think it has anything to do with the depressant that you've been putting into your body for the last 20 years? like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I was like, it is absolutely not that. No. Uh, but again, it's like, once you hear the question and I like was Googling, I emailed because I'm like, I have to fucking do something about this sadness because it won't go away. And it's like, yeah, I've been sad because of the 2016 election, but I was like doing things actively. Like I got elected to local office mm-hmm. so that I could try to do my part. I was transitioning my lawn from lawn to pollinator garden to like actively fight climate change. Like I'm trying to do things to like help me deal with the sadness and it is not working. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, that night I emailed, like I, I filled out the contact information to do the psilocybin, uh, research at like Johns Hopkins for treatment resistant depression. I was like, I have to figure something out. But then again, that voice was like, don't you think you should probably remove the depressant before you introduce an antidepressant or a psychedelic? And I was like, you motherfuckers. So that night I ended up reading this book that I had heard about on my favorite murder podcast, um, which was called This Naked Mind by Annie Grace, where it basically, yeah, she just walks you through all of the ways in which you you and our culture are basically tricking, unless you have a true physiological uh, addiction to alcohol, there are ways in which the culture and you are tricking yourself into your dependency. And if you can change your mindset and change the way you think about alcohol, and if you can really tell, convince yourself, hey, I'm not saying goodbye to my beloved best friend that makes it possible for me to be functional in the world. 
I'm saying goodbye to a highly addictive poison that is going to give me cancer and kill me. And very luckily, I was able to make that mindset switch and I quit drinking that night. It helped helped that I had a friend at that exact time who was dying of breast cancer. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, I need to read that book. I have like mixed feelings about it, right? Um, yeah. I think that it, I think that, I mean, obviously it's been the case for you and it's worked for you. I almost though get afraid that in some ways I could see some people using that as just another way to, I don't know, trick themselves or, you know what I mean? Like it just, I don't think that, I don't think that every alcoholic has to be like physically dependent upon alcohol. And I think that there's a lot of people who are not physically dependent on alcohol that are alcoholics in which what Mm. she's describing would not work. Right. Yeah. You know? Yes. I guess I sort of think of it in in a way. I'm not judging you. You know that, right? Oh, no, I'm, yeah, I'm feel fine, okay. but thank you. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, it worked, so. Yeah, no, no, uh, no. I just, it's fascinating. <laughs> I guess I think of it sort of similar to different kinds of depression. Mm-hmm. Like, there are people who, like, who can, quote, get better from depression through various kinds of therapy that don't yep. involve antidepressants. Yep. And then there are people whose brain chemistry simply cannot get changed through anything other than the introduction of an antidepressant. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess I think that overdependence on alcohol can probably come in different shapes and sizes. Yeah, And this exactly. one happened to work for me. Well, in the big book, it's, I mean, it talks about the difference between an alcoholic and a problem drinker, you know, and, and I do believe that that exists. Yeah. Um, so in it though, like, so it's about this mindset shift. I mean, are, are there any, is that basically what it is? I mean, is it giving suggestions as far as like, um, I don't know, I guess it's kind of different when it's alcohol. Cause like, you know, with alcoholism, uh, alcohol is merely just a symptom, right? right? And so you take that away and what are you left with? And so I'm wondering like in this kind of, in what she's um, outlining in the book, I mean, is it talking about, um, uh addressing or looking at maybe what are some of the underlying reasons why people are drinking or is it purely just this is kind of a cultural thing uh, it's both so yeah so it definitely talks about you know she very much talks about like how it like we relate it to like social happiness uh-huh. and we think that it is the thing that is making us um, feel good when we're in social situations, Mm -hmm. but she's like, but if you think about it, when you go to the bar and you're meeting with your friends and you, if she's like, if you watch a group of people at a bar, she's like, their good time starts when they order their drinks, Mm. not when they drink their drinks. Mm. Um, and so it kind of, you know, so she talks a lot about the way in which we think that alcohol is the friend, Mm. but the friends are the friends. Um, and that the the alcohol is just a part of the situation and that it is possible to take the alcohol out of the situation and realize that, oh, no, it's, I was here for the friends. Yeah. Um, my, my good time started as soon as my good time started and ended real damn quickly. Let me tell you that. 
<laughs> Nobody was thinking they were having a good time with me. <laughs> I do like your stories about the ways in which you ruined oh, parties. Man. Yeah. No. Such a, right. such a gem. <laughs> Cle- um, yeah, clearly just cultural for me. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, no, I think it, I think that, I mean, I don't know if it matters whether or not we have different names for the different no. kinds of people and blah, blah, blah. Like I don't necessarily, I don't think I call myself an alcoholic, but I'm not offended if somebody does. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, I um, think the thing with you is that it is in your genetics. So that's obviously something to be mindful of. Right. Yes. And part, and certainly I will talk to my kids about that, mm-hmm. that this is a thing in our family that likes to grab us by the necks and hold us. So you should be really careful about it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that is certainly true. <sighs> I don't know how much, I mean, at least they, at least they'll have the knowledge, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how much it, I don't know how much it impacts, but at least it's, it's in the back of their head. It's like the first seed being planted. Right. Well, and I guess, I mean, I really do think that I used alcohol as a coping mechanism. I mean, to not have to deal with the shit that was underneath. Yep. That that's, I think, what, you know, that the sadness was the base layer. Mm-hmm. And then the alcohol was a coping mechanism that was super useful until it became super harmful. Mm-hmm. Like it, you know, it's like it may, it flips this, it flips because mm-hmm. I think so many coping strategies are adaptive until they become maladaptive. Mm. You know, like sex is a way to create intimacy and connection. And it's like, it's a great adaptive strategy to make you feel more engaged in life and with a person or persons who you love. But then all of a sudden it can flip a switch and then it becomes maladaptive. And it's a Mm -hmm. way in which you actually disengage Mm -hmm. from life. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know if there is a setting or a situation culturally or personally in which alcohol can be an adaptive strategy. Um, I'm not going to test it, uh, but it's possible. Yeah. But so I think think for, for me, it was definitely, it became an uh, incredibly maladaptive coping strategy so that I did not have to look at what it was that was making me feel so sad. So sad. So when you mentioned that you had talked about is yeah, the emotional bottom. Yep. Yep. And so when you hit that bottom though, you mentioned that you had been on antidepressant. So was that prior to this moment? Yes. I had a, you know, I, I had, uh, I had been in therapy and then I had been, I'd been in therapy for a couple of years again, because leading I had up this to moment. this point, are we yes. are in the same time period? Okay. No, we're like 10 years prior. Okay. And what was, what was it that led you into therapy then? I was working at the boarding school. Um, I had had, I had been the victim of a violent crime. I got attacked in Chicago once the summer after I started working at the boarding school, I got attacked by a serial rapist in Chicago who I am happy to say, did not manage to rape me. Um, he mm-hmm. did beat the crap out of me. Were you um, just walking alone? Or Yes, I was walking alone at night mm-hmm. and through a neighborhood. Uh, and he, <sighs> he, I passed him and I looked at him because that's what you do because you be polite. And I looked at him and I kept walking. And then all of a sudden I heard running. <sighs> and I was like, that's really weird. Why would someone be running? And then he slammed up against the back of me, put his arm around my 
neck, dragged me across the street, and I thought I was being robbed. Dummy. Uh, There was nobody else around. No. And it didn't occur to me to scream. And I, I think that that's a couple of things. I think I had already gone into freeze response because it was so terrifying. And so for all of those listeners out there, when you, when people talk about how, oh, if something ever happened to me, I would do this and I would do that. Like, you don't know what you're going to do because you don't know what your body is going to do. And my body went into freeze response because the couple of times I did try to hit him, I had zero strength in my body because mm. um, my body already was like getting ready to die, which mm. is what freeze response is. So um, I pulled my wallet out of my pocket and held it up because I thought I was being robbed and was like, take my wallet, take my wallet. And I think by that point, he'd sort of dragged me across the street and I set it down on the hood of this car and was like, there's my wallet. And he was like, shut the fuck up. And I'm like, oh, no. And so then he, do you want to hear the whole story? I do. Okay. So then he said, take off your pants. And he like threw me down on the grass and started strangling me. And I was like, fuck, 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 fuck. Like, you cannot pass out. Like, do not let yourself pass out. Because if you pass out, you're fucked. Um, And so I said, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do whatever you want. And he stopped choking me. And I said, I don't understand what you want me to do. Like, what do you want me to do? Um, And he's like, take off your fucking pants. And I don't know if I said no, or I don't know. I can't remember exactly what I said, but he started strangling me again. And I was, you know, like I was in my head and I was just like, I cannot wake up tomorrow, a rape victim. Like, I cannot deal with that. And I cannot, I was staying with a friend of mine. I'm like, I can't go back to her house right now and tell her that I just got raped. Like, Mm. those two things can't happen. I'm like, so I need to solve this fucking problem. And so, and I'm like, and you can't let yourself pass out. So he is choking me and I'm thinking all of these things. And so again, I said, like, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. And so he stopped choking me and I'm like, I don't understand what you want me to do. <laughs> That's like when I did with my mom with when she took me up to boarding school and I was like, no, I want to go to rehab. And then we went to rehab and I was like, no, I want to go to boarding school back and forth. <laughs> exactly. Exact same kind of thing. You just play a shell game yeah. until you can figure yeah. it out. Yeah. But so, yeah. So he started strangling me again and this was fucking nuts. My mind split apart in I could see like a hundred thousand screens, all of which were scrolling as I like searched through every file in my brain Mm. for a solution to this problem. None of which was screaming, but to for a solution to this problem. And I happened, I remembered some article I had read decades prior about a woman who was attacked in New York City, who the cops afterwards said that she had screamed obscenities at the guy and that it had made her seem aggressive. And that what, you know, the average rape takes like soup to nuts, take the whole thing takes like three minutes Mm -hmm. from the time they get you to the time they rape you to the time that it is over. And what they want is for it, they want to scare the crap out of you, make you do what they want, and then they're out of there before you even come to your senses. 
And so he was like, this woman seemed like she was getting more aggressive instead of less aggressive. And so the guy gave up. And so then I was just like, okay, okay, I'll do whatever you want. And he let go. And I was like, get the fuck off me, motherfucker. And thankfully, I have a very dirty mouth. Um, and I just let loose with a stream of obscenities. Oh, my God. And then all of a sudden, I was his like, face, Was his face covered at all or no? No. Um, but it was all happening so fast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like that said, I did get a decent look at him in the part that comes next, which is all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, what's happening? And I was just like, oh my God, he's punching my face. He had gotten on top of me mm. and was punching me in the face. Mm. And I was just like, huh, guess this is what this feels like. Um, and I was just like, well, this is not that bad. Like, I'm, I mean, my body was so flooded with God knows what at that point that I literally couldn't feel it. And I was just like, well, this is not that bad. And I'm like, and if this is what we're going to do, I'm like, I can do this all night. Like, fuck this guy. And I, I remember relaxing back into the grass because I was like, mm -hmm. I win fuck face. Um, and so, yeah, he punched me in the face a bunch more and then he got up and ran away. Wow. And then I jumped up and started screaming and then somebody immediately called out their window. Do you need me to call the police? And I said, yes. Um, and then the police came almost instantly. And I found out later that after I had started screaming, like 10 people called the police. So mm -hmm. note to people who are getting attacked in a neighborhood, scream immediately. But yeah, I do think that the fact that I didn't scream and the fact that I just like went so inside myself has something to do with the fact that I have always been like hyper, hyper self-reliant mm. that I have always felt like I have to, like, I can only depend on myself, which mm. over the course of the in police investigation that came after, and they did end up catching the guy because he was in the midst of attacking somebody else. And they found, they got his uh, license plate number. Um, but I had to go do a lineup and I did that all by myself because again, I was like, I'm like, I had to prove to myself that I could do it, I think. Um, but then it was after that, that I was just like, maybe hyper self-reliance is not the best way to go through life. And so when I went, I was a, a witness in the trial for a woman who he did rape. Um, that one I brought my friend to. And that's so were, when I started were charges therapy. pressed against him for you? No, because he didn't rape me. And so it is not worth the money to uh charge him for that for assault no i mean wow. he's in prison for he had multiple multiple rape convictions so he is in prison i hope for the rest of his life oh my god so then did you go to the hospital right after that i did not because i was in shock the cops rolled up one of the police officers tried to get me to get into the car uh -huh. and in my mind all that was going to happen if I got into that police car was that I was going to end up down in some like gray cinder block precinct for the rest of the night mm -hmm. under some glaring light. And so I was just like, I'm not getting into the car. No. And so I'm like, can't you interview me here? Can't we do this here? You know, like I just had, mm. I just got it into my head that I needed to stay there. And so thankfully one of the other officers was like, yes, we can interview you here. 
So then we sat on the porch and he interviewed me while the other guy went and looked for the guy. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, it was not, it was the next day um, the people, the officers came who took the pictures of me and took my clothes um, that I, that I think one of the officers was like, maybe you should go get your face looked at. So how long after was that, was it that they caught him? Uh, maybe like eight months. Wow. Is that right? I think it was, it was, I had gone back to the boarding school. I did not expect that they were ever going to catch him. Um, and I flew back from the boarding school to Chicago so that I could participate in the lineup. And then I did it again for the trial. When they, when you initially gave them the report, did they say yeah. to you, this guy meets a description of somebody that there's been complaints against? Yes. You did. So then it was, but they did not, they had not made a public announcement that there was a fucking rapist on the loose. After my attack, they made a public announcement that there was a rapist on the loose in that loose in that neighborhood in Chicago. But they didn't know who it was. No. So one thing that I heard you share in the Naked Mind interview was at that point um, after this happened that you had some, I mean, I know you just talked about the whole self-reliance, but that you had some revelations related to just kind of the uh, emotional constriction or lack of emotions in, in your within your family that kind of came up for you as a result of this incident? Totally, yes. Uh, as a family, we had no capacity to process what happened to me. Hmm. Like, um, it did not occur to me to want to rely on my family emotionally. Like I, it, it just didn't even occur to me when I went back to the boarding school, one of my colleagues was just like, Oh my God, did your parents come the next day? And I was like, no, that would be weird. And then it turns out that <laughs> the opposite is weird. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no, we just, we didn't know how to be there for each other. Like, I didn't know how to ask for help. They didn't know how to give it. Like, mm -hmm. when I saw them, I think it was later that summer, they did not know how to be with me with it. You know, like, I remember at one point uh, them being like, wow, you've really changed. And being, like, dis like disappointed mm -hmm. and being like, yes something terrible happened but i'm dealing with it was sort of my hmm. response how yeah. horrible you know yeah sad for me sad for them like sad for yes because as a mom now and as a wife like the you know the the pleasure and the sort of the point of a family I think is to be reliant on each other that mm -hmm. that's yeah that's what those things are for yeah and the fact it's like it's not that they're bad parents it's like they are not they have no capacity or capability to be able to go there yeah no nobody taught them how to do that mm -hmm. you know I talked with my mom about it and I said something about the fact that you know that I didn't ask her to come and she's like I wanted to come but I didn't know how to offer. Mm. And I'm like, oh God, this sucks so hard for both of us. Yeah. So then 
So then you entered therapy after this incident? So then I did EMDR. I'm very grateful that I had somebody at that because EMDR was still pretty new because mm-hmm. this was like 2001 or 2002. Oh, and wow. Thankfully, this a long ass time ago. Yeah. Thankfully, I was in Chicago and there was a woman there who, and I can't remember her name, but she was one of the first people who I, who was using EMDR. And so, and I had a friend, I think it's the same friend who, yeah, it was a total blessing. I think it was the same friend who later was just like, you should try psychedelic therapy. But my, my friend, Chris, who was one of my best friends from college, I think it was their cousin was a therapist who told them about EMDR and they told me, and I managed to find a EMDR therapist in Chicago who really helped me with the, yeah, the acute trauma of a terrible singular event. How long after the event was it that you started the EMDR? Weeks. Wow. Yeah. No, it was super lucky. It was right after. And so you, so from what my, my old therapist told me about like with the EMDR, she said, you really will notice pretty significant changes quickly Yeah. when you're processing an event that has just happened. Yeah. Was that your experience? I think so. I mean, I feel like I was able to get that kind of therapy so quickly that I don't even know if I had all the way started experiencing the negative effects. Mm. Yeah, because you were still kind of in shock. Yes. So that I hadn't, it's not like I had spent time sitting with these shitty effects and then got help. It's like I got help so quickly that she really helped me right away. Um, Because I think I did not suffer like really bad PTSD from that event. How many sessions did you do? Do you remember? I can't remember, but I mean, I I was only there for the summer. Um, And so 10 tops maybe. Yeah. She also said something that was so useful, which was basically like, this is something like, this is a shitty event and it's awful, but it happened and it's part of you now. Mm. And you can find a way to make space for it in your, you know, in your life story, in your sense of yourself, um, you can find a place for it or it will find its own place. And if you not let it, but yeah, if you try to avoid integrating it and it integrates itself, it's going to be way worse. That's so powerful. Yes. It was super useful to me. Wow. So then, okay. So then when did you start taking the antidepressants? Yes. So then it wasn't even until like six years later. So it was like two years after I got attacked, I, you know, I had pulled myself back together. As always, self-reliant. <laughs> the EMDR was great. I'm back in business. Um, so I'm at the boarding school. Of course, by then I had, uh, I was, you know, still, I was socially drinking with colleagues and I just, I had this night where I'm like, everything is falling apart and Mm -hmm. I am going to fall apart and I'm going to lose everything that I care about and lose everything that I've worked so hard for and I need help. Mm -hmm. And I had read this book called The Middle Passage by a Jungian therapist called uh, named James Hollis, which I highly recommend. What's it called Um, again? The Middle Passage. Okay. Um, It's basically about when you get to the part in your life where you have a strong enough ego construct to survive as an adult in the world, that that is the part in which people 
start to feel themselves fall apart. And most people then have a midlife crisis and put themselves together, re put themselves back together by like getting a divorce and a sports car. Mm -hmm. Um, his thesis is that you should let yourself fall apart so that a kind of bigger part, a bigger self can emerge mm. that doesn't need the tight constraints of the ego structure that let you survive in the world that can be bigger than that. And so I had read that book and I emailed him and was like, hey, I'm falling apart. Do you know any good Jungian therapists in Philadelphia? And he gave me a recommendation for a person and I emailed her and she's like, I'm not accepting any new clients, but why don't you tell me what's going on with you and I'll see if I can make a referral. And I'm like, I was attacked by a serial rapist in Chicago. And she's <laughs> like, I will see you next week. <laughs> Y'all can use that. Everyone listening, you can, you can just use that as an excuse. And, and then just, once you don't get tell in them, there. yeah, tell them <laughs> maybe towards the end of middle of the first session. Right. Well, once you get in there, you can say that was a lie and see how fucked up I am. I yeah, need I you. really need you. I really need your help. I'm really screwed up. <laughs> so I worked with her for like four, five years. I don't even remember anymore. And I was so good at not getting better. Like, or I was so good at just putting myself back together to a, so that I could continue to function without actually having to go to an emotional bottom. Mm. Like I just got, I'm just like, yes, let's think it through and like, mm. let's tell stories about it and let's analyze it. And I can stay in my brains all day. This is great. I love it here. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah. Uh, I just, I spent five years getting, yeah, just running around in my brain. Um, and then it was, what year was it? I was 34. And so what does that make it? 2010, nine. And I started to, again, get just super duper sad. And I'm like, I don't understand what's happening. I'm doing therapy. I'm reading every book there is to read. Like, why am I still so sad? And she, at that point, was like, maybe you should think about antidepressants. Mm -hmm. And so I did. And I went on a very low dose of Prozac, which immediately cured uh, my binge eating disorder, which I was also using wow. as a coping strategy to not feel. Immediately cured it without me even trying. And then exacerbated my desire to drink. Mm. which now that after I talked about that on the Naked Mind podcast, I went and looked that up. And that's actually a thing that is not really talked about or studied. But the fact, you know, they're just like, you're on antidepressants, don't drink. But there, I think that they that there is research that they are finding that it can exacerbate your desire to drink. So it did. And then what the Prozac helped me do was get out of a funk enough to realize that I want that I wanted a family and that if I stayed at the boarding school any longer because I'd been there for seven years and things were going awesome and I was ha I was teaching everything I wanted to teach I was coaching everything I wanted to coach I fucking loved it there mm -hmm. and I'm like if I don't get the heck out of this place I'm going to wake up in 20 years having had a wonderful career and no husband and no babies. Mm. So I 
applied for jobs, got one, left. Literally the first weekend that I went out with friends in Philly, I met the person who is now my husband. Wow. We did not start dating for months and months because he had a girlfriend at the time, but I met him. So uh-huh. the universe was like, listen, you just have to do a bit of it and we'll, and we'll help you out. So I guess those are the stages in which I used therapy. How long were you on the Prozac before you got off it? Oh, basically a year. Um, And the only reason I went off it, like it didn't, I wasn't, it was not planned. I was between insurances and hadn't, just hadn't done the um, math. Uh (laughs) It just hadn't done the math. And it was like a 30 day window between them. And my Prozac ran out and I was like, fuck it. And uh, I just quit. (laughs) Wow. And, did, uh, did, 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 that can be so dangerous. Were you okay? Oh, it wrecked me. <laughs> oh, it, did. it wrecked me for like a year. Yeah, oh, no, wow. it was horrible. I mean, thankfully it was an extremely low dose, but I'm sh- I mean, I'm not shocked because the doctor's office where I was going to get prescribed the actual psychiatrist, he was running people through there at like three minute intervals. Like the fact that nobody in that office called me mm-hmm. when my prescription lapsed and was not filled is not surprising given what I saw going on, but doesn't seem like good medicine. So you didn't try to get back on it though? Like when you started to have negative consequences? I wasn't depressed. I was exhausted is how it felt to me. And so I didn't put the two, I didn't put two and two together because I think nobody had told me how bad it can fuck you up if you just quit cold turkey. And so it just didn't occur to me that that's what was happening. So, yeah. Thankfully, I ended up getting a referral to an amazing acupuncturist and she put me back together. But I had by then diagnosed myself with a trillion different things, you know, like a, uh, um, oh God, what do we call those things? Adrenal fatigue. Mm-hmm. I was, so I was off sugar. I was off caffeine. I was off starch. Like I was taking some kind of like herbs for my adrenals, like blah, blah, blah. Um, and I think I was just like a bad withdrawal from Prozac. <laughs> Are you back on all of those things? Starches, caffeine, and sugar? Yes, I am. Okay. Wonderful. Cause I was going to end the interview if you were not. <laughs> <laughs> So many starches. Starch life. (laughs) Exactly. So then how many years between that and your emotional bottom? Yes. Uh, Eight. Wow. (laughs) And how did you feel over those years? I mean, so this is when your alcohol use is kind of slowly becoming more of a problem. Well, I guess you're having your kids though. So you're not drinking when you're pregnant. Yeah, no. So it would be, yeah, it would creep. And then I stopped and then it would creep, stop. And then it had just, yeah, then it had just started to creep. Um, When you had that bottom, were you currently working with a therapist? No. Okay. And you were not on any antidepressants? No. Okay. Yeah. So then you say that your friend had sent you the, um, the article about the you know, use of psychedelics for treatment resistant, but I don't know if I'd necessarily qualify you as treatment resistant. Um, having treatment resistant depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think so either. 
I think I was using the wrong kind of treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, and that that's what it was. I think that the psychedelic, uh, situation is still so new Mm -hmm. that some of the language that they are using, I think is not totally apt. Um, so yeah, I think I hadn't actually started trying to treat my depression yet. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So then how long were you off the sauce before you started to try that? I stopped drinking in February of 2020. I started doing the therapy in October. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that can help you on your own journey. As always, I know that you did. Thank you, Katie. Looking forward to part two next week. Uh, Merch is coming soon in the next week or so. So get ready for that. And what else? I don't don't really have anything else for you. It's it's 11 o'clock and I still have to edit this shit. So I'm going to keep it brief. Uh, You can find me on social media at adultchildpod on Instagram and TikTok, and you can hit a girl up on there, or you can email me at andrea at adultchildpodcast.com. Join the Patreon. Give me a damn five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and I will see you next week for a fucking amazing episode of Adult Child. It's going to be super raw, super vulnerable, and I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a good day, I promise. Oh, 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 oh,